Father, as we open your word today, open our hearts to it. Help me to teach. Help me to teach rightly and well. As always, give the hearers discernment. Lead us into the truth. Guard us from error. Help us to be open to what your word says. Give us grace to hold on to what is good. Lord, as we... uh, We open your word to hear from you. Uh, Pour out your grace. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. We would have never called him Big John to his face. Uh, but he was a big man. He was maybe 6'5", memory serves, maybe taller. And he wasn't just tall, but he was big. He was big in the shoulders, big in the chest, big face. I mean, everything was big about him. He was, a, he was a big man. And he may have been Big John to the students uh, at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, but if you're speaking to other seminary professors or, or if you ever had occasion to address him yourself, it was Dr. Walverd, not Big John. But he was big. He was big in other ways, too. 1986, that's what I'm thinking of. He was the, really, I think inarguably, the uh, foremost representative and defender of dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennialism in the world. Uh, it sounds like a mouthful, but it unpacks fairly easily. Uh, it's, it's really not that, you know, a lot of big words, but let me unpack them just a little bit before I tell you the rest of what I wanted to tell you about Big John. Dispensationalism is just, it, all it is is the belief that the Bible recognizes differing spiritual economies in human history. And let me tell you what I mean by that. I'll give, give you an illustration. Uh, when we read uh, Genesis 1 through 3, when you read Genesis 1 through 3, you know, Adam and Eve, and you can eat from this tree, but don't eat from that tree. You know, you read it, and you read it as the Word of God, right? This is the Word of God. And yet, you instinctively understand that, uh, that it's not for you. You're not, you don't leave, you don't go read that and then go outside and think, well, which trees am I allowed to eat from? Which trees am I not allowed to eat from? You know, because this is important. You know, I just read in the Bible. No, you understand that it was for them, but it's not for you in the same way, even though it's the Word of God, right? You understand that. So dispensationalists, they say, okay, well, there's a dispensation. There is a, there's a spiritual economy. They, and that one they call, you know, innocence the age of innocence or the dispensation of innocence. In the, in the same way, you read, well, really, the whole, the real, almost the whole Old Testament, the bulk of the Old Testament, the law. And you, and you read about, oh, about sacrifices and what animals to bring and, and uh, you know, not just, not just animals, but rules and regulations and, sac- you know, clean and unclean things and, all this, this is clean and this is unclean, and uh, and what you what to do if you have a skin disease, you know, you know, and go, to, you know, you read all of that, and you you said, okay, this is the Bible, this is the Word of God, but it's not for me, 
You know, you, you don't go out and, th- and try to look up in the Old Testament what to do if you have a skin disease, right? You know, or, or and all like that. You know, you understand that that Old Testament ceremonial law is, is not for you in the same way because of where you live in history. It's not, that was for them. It's not for you. So you, you have a dispensation of the law and you have a dispensation of, of grace. You know, we, we're under the dispensation of grace. Why? Because the ceremonial law has been fulfilled by Christ. Uh, we relate to God under the terms of the new covenant. It, this is, you may have heard this. Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. New deal. New deal. New arrangement. You know, the, the Bible that you carry around has an Old Testament and a New Testament. It's, it could be also, you could say, covenant. Old covenant, new covenant. Old arrangement, new arrangement. So then you, then you have three. You know, you have the innocence and you have... And you ha- you know you have the age of or the not age or dispensation of of the law uh, of of grace. A Schofield Reference Bible. Uh, who who knows who knows what I'm talking about? Schofield Reference Bible. Okay, a lot of you, a lot of you. Well, a Schofield Reference Bible was literally, really, literally the Bible of 20th century dispensationalism. <laughs> We're in the 21st century, but it's literally the Bible of the 20th century dispensationalism. And it's settled on, like most dispensationalists do and did, settled on seven. Seven of these economies that are recognizable in the, in the Scripture. But that word dispensationalism, is, it's just, all it is, is a recognition that God has related to mankind, you know, according to the Bible, or at least what, what we can discern from the Bible, God has related to mankind through history differently at different times, and God's instructions in one era of human history are may not be for every era of human history. And you know that. You know that. You may have never heard of dispensationalism. You might not be able to spell dispensationalism. But if you claim that the Bible is God's Word, that this whole thing is God's Word, it is, and yet you did not bring to church an animal for a priest to sacrifice, then if you didn't do that, you are a dispensationalist. (laughs) Because even though that's in the Bible, no, it's not for me. Same, Same way. If you also believe that Jesus will one day return to the earth physically, bodily, so that you can see him, you know, the people will be able to see him, touch him, hear him, and will establish his kingdom and reign on the earth for a thousand years, as Revelation chapter 20 says he will, then you are, same way, you are a premillennialist. You might not have ever heard that term. You might not know how to spell it. A lot of people don't. It's hard to keep up with how many L's are supposed to be in it. You know, but if you believe that Jesus is coming back and going to establish his kingdom and reign on the earth for a thousand years, like Revelation 20 says he, he will, then you are a premillennialist. And finally, and this kind of covered Dr. Walbert's expertise, if you believe that the rapture of the church, uh, the catching up, of the church in the air as revealed in 1 Thessalonians 4. If you believe, and not everybody does, it's really the position is kind of waning, it seems to me, in the, 
in the church. But if you believe that that catching up, 1 Thessalonians catching up, the rapture of the church will take place before the great tribulation that Jesus says is coming on the earth, uh, then you are a pre-tribulationist. It means you think that Jesus is coming back, or that the rapture will happen first pre, then the tribulation. And in 1986, John Walvoord, Dr. Walvoord, was the foremost representative and defender of dispensational, pre-tribulational, premillennialism in the whole world. He had written about 30 books, and I'm not going to read all these 30 titles. I don't even have all 30 titles, but let me give you some of the titles. He'd already written these books in, in 1986, when, I, when the time I'm telling you about. Here's what, The Rapture Question. That's one book. Israel in Prophecy. That's another. The Nations in Prophecy. There's another. The Church in Prophecy. The Return of the Lord. The Millennial Kingdom. The Blessed Hope and the Tribulation. Major Bible Prophecies. 37 Prophecies that Affect You Today. The Final Drama. 14 Essential Keys to Understanding the Prophetic Scriptures. The End Times. An Explanation of World Events in Biblical Prophecy. And I know just one more title, Every Prophecy in the Bible. You, you see a common theme, thread there, you know, you see a thread there in those titles. He, he wrote uh, several commentaries on individual books of the Bible, but the choice of books, you know, is instructive, and it's really along the same lines. He, he wrote commentaries, individual commentaries on 1 Thessalonians, uh, Revelation, Daniel, and Matthew, all books that really kind of have a pronounced emphasis on unfulfilled or yet-to-be-fulfilled prophecy. One of his books, uh, one of his books did better, you know, just in terms of sales than, than any of the others. It was 1973, he published a book called Armageddon, Oil and the Middle East Crisis. Sold over a million and a half copies. Made the New York Times bestseller list. It, it was revised and re-released in January 1991, uh, right at the time of the Gulf War and Desert Storm. Um, Dr. Walvoord even got a call during that time, the latter time when the book was re-released, revised, updated. Um, he got a call from uh, President H.W. Uh, Bush, the one just passed here recently, and um, to, talk, to chat about it, to talk about his book, Armageddon, Oil in the Middle East Crisis, and, uh, and Dr. Walver was told by President Bush that he and his, the White House staff were all reading the book together. Uh, when I, in 1986, when I was in seminary, Dr. Walver had been president of the seminary for 34 years. He was the second president of Dallas Seminary. Uh, he, he took over from Lewis Sperry Chafer, if that name means anything to you, in 1952, the year I was born. So all that's to say, he was an imposing, <laughs> uh, intimidating figure in every way, not just because he was this towering 6'5", you know, big-shouldered, big-chested man, but because of all of it, this, this resume. Uh, I, I was In that year, I was in a... Uh, kind of an unusual upper upper division class on the history 
of the, this is the class is on the history of dispensationalism, and it was taught by Dr. Walvard. Uh, there were about a dozen students in the class. It didn't it didn't meet in the classrooms. It met in the administration building, at this big giant walnut table. It wasn't really where classes were held. It was a where conferences, you know, where they had their board meetings and things like that. I don't, that's the only time I ever saw that room <laughs> in this class, this big, big, massive walnut, walnut table. And the way this, they called it, a, didn't really call it a class, they called it a seminar. And the way it worked was that each student was to write a paper on some narrow aspect of the history, history of dispensationalism. And whenever your paper came due, you were up. You know, and, and when you were up, you would distribute copies of the paper to all the students in the class and, and give a copy to Dr. Walvard, and then you would sit there. You, you'd have to go up to the front of the table and sit at the head of the table with Dr. Walvard and present and defend your paper. Now, it's important to note that as a theological system, as, as a theological system, uh, dispensationalism did not date before the 19th century. It's, it, it was fairly recent. Uh, you know, we, we think you can find uh, church fathers as early as the second century dividing up the Bible into these certain, you know, spiritual economies or these eras where, because it's obvious, you know, that that's different. God revealed himself in, in, uh, and related to humankind in different ways in different time periods. But so it, it goes back. But as a system, it's, it was fairly recent it didn't go it wasn't as a system it wasn't really discussed or written about before the 19th century so that meant that for about half about half of the history of dispensationalism the things we would be writing about about half of that history would come from theories and books and scholars and and uh, ideas and everything that took place within the parameters of dr walver's career he was active in writing, you know, for about half of it. So you, you would have situations where a, some poor student would say something, you know, he'd be defending his paper about some narrow aspect of the history of dispensationalism, and he'd say something like, well, H.A. Ironside believed this or that about national Israel. And Dr. Walbert would say, well, that's not what he told me. He, you know, he said, we, we, were, we stood right down there in that parking lot, and he told me that he, you know, so some, you know, some poor student, you know, we, we neophyte, uh, wet behind the ear greenhorns, we're supposed to be, you know, pretending to be scholars and, and, and writing on the history of dispensationalism, but the problem is we're sitting next to the history of dispensationalism, you know, and, and it, was, it was kind of intimidating. When it, when it was my turn to take my place next to Dr. Walvard, near the end of my presentation, Dr. Walvard had interrupted me and, and offered his own commentaries. Probably correct, I don't remember his correction or expansion or something. He, you know, he, but he held the floor for a, a number of minutes. And, uh, and then he it was kind of near the end of the class time. But he turned to me after he said what he wanted to say. He turned to me and he said, are you finished or is there more? Well, actually, there was a little more, but I, I wanted to say, 
you tell me. Because <laughs> it sounds like I need to shut up. You know, it sounds like, it sounds like I'm finished. Uh, and I just needed to. But listen, listen. I believe in my heart. And I, and I believe, I want to just not believe in my heart, but I also I am fully convinced that, there's so, that there was something more than what Dr. Walvard saw. Because Dr. Walvard believed, as did many dispensationalists of his era, and many, many Christians do today, that there was no future. And this is what we've been talking about. This is the third week. We're leaving the topic, the narrow topic this week. But he believed that there was no future for this world beyond the millennial kingdom. That there's no future for it whatsoever beyond Revelation chapter 20. And why, why not? Because he and they believe that the present created world will be destroyed and not merely destroyed but destroyed in the sense of annihilated ceasing to exist not going to exist anymore so that the new heavens and the new earth that we've been talking about will be an entire in his view an entirely new creation Ex nihilo, as his theologians say, from nothing. He's going to wipe it out. Nothing's going to, this world's going to wipe it out. This creation, the whole creation, is going to wipe it out. It won't exist anymore. And then God's going to speak anew, call a new one in existence. And therefore, you know, Dr. Walbert and others had no idea whatsoever what it will be like. And he saw no continuity, uh, no continuity whatsoever between the old and the new. And the creation we live in now is just destined for total annihilation. Revelation chapter 2011 reads, Revelation 2011, do we have that? Then I saw a great white throne. Now I want to read you what, he, what Dr. Walbert wrote about this. And not because to pick on Dr. Walbert or taking the task that now that he's safely in heaven and I'm here. But just to, just to illustrate the difference, because these are different ideas, and you need to understand them. Revelation 20:11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Now that's New American Standard Version, the English Standard Version. Now I'm going to read other versions today because the English Standard Version. It, ten, it seems to me to skew toward my view, and I don't want to do that. Not only that, Dr. Walbert, the, the English Standard Version didn't even exist when he wrote. So, you know, so we're going to look at other, other versions today. But here's what Dr. Walbert wrote about that verse, the idea that earth and heaven fled away. He writes, The most natural interpretation of the fact that earth and heaven flee away is that the present earth and heaven are destroyed and will be replaced by the new heaven and new earth. This is also confirmed by the additional statement in Revelation 21.1 where John sees a new heaven and a new earth replacing the first heaven and the first earth which have passed away. 
frequent references in the Bible seem to anticipate this future time when the present world will be destroyed. And he cites some verses, mostly from the gospel, and three of them actually, he cites five verses, three of them are Jesus saying, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. They're parallel passages. One of them is, some, his, is Jesus saying something very similar, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. But, then, but the last one he quotes is the big one. It's a really important one, and it's what I told you last week. This deserves a week to talk about. It's the real, it, it really is the real hurdle for any concept of renewed earth that I've been advocating, you know, that I've been saying that the Bible teaches, uh, or a redeemed earth, or an earth made new as opposed to a new earth made. And it's the, it's the last verse cited, it's 2 Peter 3.10, about which, and you can put it up now, but this is what Dr. Walford writes about this verse. He says, according to this last reference that he just gave, which is that one that you see right back there, 2 Peter 3.10, the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, like the one we opened our service with today. You know, a great noise. <clears throat> like Woodstock, you know, big noise coming through. Uh, the heavens shall pass away with a great noise. And the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and, and the works that are therein shall be burned up. You can leave it there. But Peter, and this is Dr. Walbert writing. says, Peter goes on to say, this is the next verse. Well, next verse. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be, is King James, in all holy conversation and godliness. Well, that's strong language, isn't it? I mean, that the heavens passing away with a great noise. I mean, doesn't that that sounds like ka boom? Ka boom, right? And this is, you know, I'm thinking back then. You know, when Dr. Walbert wrote, it's the height of the Cold War, isn't it? And it sounded very. We we were. In fact, we saw apologetic value in that. The Bible predicts nuclear warfare. And we saw this. Look at this. You know, when Peter was, he had no conception of nuclear war, but look at it. We see nuclear war here. That's, that's the argument that a lot of us made at that time. But it, it's, uh, so we saw some, you know, apologetic value in that. The elements melting. The elements melting. Sound like the basic building blocks of of matter dissolved burned up now these all of that language there in second peter 3 it's at least consistent with the idea that the present creation will cease to exist i mean i have to admit that it's at least consistent with it i mean and if you, you know, if you look at it and say, well, this is this, it's just insurmountable. You know, it's just not, it's just insurmountable. It's not going to exist, Second Peter three. Well, I have to admit it's consistent with that idea, but for Dr. Walvert and the view he represented, uh, it was more than consistent with it. He, it was, 
it was more than consistent with it. It, it. it necessitated it in his view. It could mean nothing else. Now, there were those at the time who advocated, like I've been teaching the last few weeks, saying, no, the earth will be redeemed. It's going to be, you know, recovered, renewed. <clears throat> there were those who believed that at the time, of course. And Dr. Walver took one of them to task. I'm reading from the same piece. He says, J.B. Smith, I don't know who J.B. Smith was. I didn't look it up. I didn't look it up. I looked up the footnote and it said Ibid, and I just didn't want to chase it down before. I don't know who J.B. Smith was, but it could have been me. So J.B. Smith offers the rather astonishing conclusion that the language employed by Peter in 2 Peter 3 there does not signify the vanishing of the former heaven and earth into nothing. Now, he's astonished at that because for Dr. Walbert, that's exactly what 2 Peter 3 demanded. It demands that the present earth and the present heaven vanish into nothing. But it's also, but what J.B. Smith says, whoever that was, is exactly what I'm saying. And what I have to prove to you today, or prove, I don't know about proof, but show you today that, that it's exactly what I'm saying, that the earth's future destruction by fire, as described in that dramatic language of 2 Peter 3, does not demand its annihilation, does not mean passed out of existence, existence and it does allow for a renewed creation as described in Romans chapter 8. I'm with J.B. Smith, whoever that was. But more importantly, in my view, I'm with the Apostle Peter. Because the Apostle Peter, he preached in his second sermon at Pentecost, Acts chapter 3, we got to Acts chapter 3. This is the same Peter who wrote about, do we have uh, 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 Acts 3? Yes. This is the same Peter who talked about the destruction of the earth, you know, dissolved the elements, melting and dissolving and all of that. He says, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things. Do we have the, the period of restoration of all things? We should have, uh, okay, there it is. Does we have that there? Yes, restoration of all things, yes. Whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. So apparently, Peter didn't see uh, this, some contradiction between Jesus coming back and restoring all things and what he says in 2 Peter 3, that the earth you know, in the present creation will be destroyed, even in that dramatic language. But to, hear, to finish with Dr. Walbert, just, to, just as an illustration of, of the view, J.B. Smith offers the rather astonishing conclusion that the language employed does not signify the vanishing of the former heaven and earth into nothing and offers the following passages as, pr as proof. 
He says 2 Corinthians 5, 17, James 1, 10, Romans 8, 19 through 23, 2 Peter 3. We'll get to some of those, not all of them. But of the passages he cited, Dr. Walford wrote, even a casual reading of those passages offers no evidence whatsoever that Revelation 20:11 should not be understood as a destruction of the present earth and heaven. It would be difficult to find a more explicit statement than that contained here in Revelation 20:11 and in 2 Peter 3:10 and 11. But they do offer evidence. They do. <laughs> Last week we spent most of the time in Romans chapter 8 and just to highlight what Romans chapter 8 teaches, clearly teaching that the present creation will be renewed, recovered, made new. Right? 19, Romans 8, 19. For the, and I don't have these, uh, these uh, references to put up. But the creation waits for the, with eager, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What's creation eagerly longing for? What waiting for? It's destruction? For it to not exist anymore? Is the creation saying, put me out of my misery? Uh, Romans 8, 20, 20 through 22. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. You're going to be free from sin and death someday? Is that your mean going to be destroyed? Is that, your, is that the shape of your freedom? That's not the New Testament, thank the Lord. Right? For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth into na uh, until now. The, the creation's pictured as longing to be free from the curse of sin and death. It's longing for a birth, not, not its cremation. It's not longing to be cremated. It's longing to be born again, born anew. 8.23, and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await eagerly for our adoption as sons. We can say that is the redemption of our bodies. We groan for the redemption of our, the resurrection. I told you last week, some lately, you know, you've followed me, all you know here, follow what's going on with me. I've literally been groaning for that resurrection body. <laughs> what am I longing for? To be annihilated, to pass out of existence, to not exist anymore? No, I'm not a Buddhist i got a stronger hope than a Buddhist. <laughs> I want to be renewed. I want to be re the redemption of my body. And what does a passage like 2 Corinthians 5.17 have to do with it? This is one of the... And this is, this is new territory. We haven't been here yet. Well, it seems fairly obvious to me. Here's the verse. Therefore, it's on the front of the bulletin today. Today. It's in your mind and heart. You've memorized it too. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
What in the world does that passage have to do with the new heavens and new earth? Well, I'll tell you this. It shows that in New Testament terminology, to be made a new creation means to be transformed, not thrown away and replaced by something entirely different and entirely new. If you are in Christ, are you a new creation in Christ? Of course you are. Bible says so, right? If you are in Christ, has the old passed away and new come? Of course. If you have been genuinely, and let's like unpack it a little bit more. If, if you have genuinely been born again, are there aspects of the old life, the old self, that just simply have gone away? Yes, there are. <laughs> yes, there are. Are, are, are. are there new things that have come into your life and they're a part of who you are now, a part of what you are now, a part of the way you think now, a part of what, just a part of you now that weren't there before? Yes. <laughs> yes. But in the old passing away and in the new coming, you yourself did not cease to exist. I wasn't replaced when God saved me. I was transformed, or at least the beginnings of it, right? There's continuity between the old me, the old you, and the new me and the new you. There's continuity between what I was and what I have become. And same with you. And I maintain that the glory of God's saving work is in the continuity. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I once was a slave to sin, and I've become a slave of righteousness. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, but God made me alive together with Christ. I was transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. Salvation is not God throwing away, discarding a failed project and starting over brand new with something completely different. That's not salvation. Salvation is God putting His redeeming, loving, transforming hand to that which is broken. Can you, can you identify? To that which is broken and making it where it works perfectly functionally. Salvation is God touching the defiled and making it holy. Salvation is God taking what was ruined and twisted and marred and ugly and making it beautiful and straight and right. And if you were in Christ... 
2 Corinthians 5.17 is your experience. You are one of God's reclamation projects. And what God is doing in each of us is being replicated, Romans 8 says, there's no way around it, in, uh, in my view, in creation. And so what do we do with that dramatic language of 2 Peter 3? You know, destroyed and the elements passing away with a roar and all, and all of that. The clue and the key is that Peter, in that chapter, doesn't only speak of a future destruction of the, of the earth. He also speaks of a destruction of the earth that is in the past. And that's what allows us to put those two ideas together. That yes, it'll be destroyed by fire. And yes, it'll be renewed, redeemed, made new, <laughs> reclaimed. 2 Peter 3, verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed. Look at that. Being flooded with water. But by His word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. I mean, you see that, of course. Peter says the earth was destroyed already one time in the flood by water. Was the earth destroyed? Well, sure it was. Well, the Bible says so. And we can think of it. Yeah, sure, it was. In its destruction, did it cease to exist? Uh, was it replaced by a totally new, no connection whatsoever creation? No. It didn't cease to exist. It didn't vanish. Noah and his family and the animals on the ark, they started over on the same earth that had been destroyed. And by the way, there was therefore considerable continuity between the old and the new. They, Noah and his family didn't find themselves in some science fiction world that couldn't even been imagined. Right? And 2 Peter 3, the whole chapter, teaches that just as earth was destroyed once by water, it's going to be, the earth is going to again fall under God's judgment, but in an even greater way by fire. But listen, in the big picture, the fire will renew, will refine, will recover, will transform, as God's fires always do. God is not one to give up on the works of His hands. He redeems, He rescues, He recovers, He saves. Now just to end here, Dr. Walbert offered an opinion on why, in his view, 
God would discard. And he says, not Dr. Walbert, this, is, this might be you. This might be what you believed when you came in here today. And, and maybe what you believe when you leave here, and that's, okay, that's fine. <laughs> Although I'm trying to make a different case. But why would God discard the present earth and make an entirely new one? And what he says, I think, is, is instructive. Here's what he writes. He says, further, it would be most natural that the present earth and heaven, the scene of the struggle with Satan and sin, should be displaced by an entirely new order suited for eternity. What could be simpler than for God to create a new heaven and a new earth by divine fiat in keeping with his purpose for eternity to come? In other words, why wouldn't he destroy the present earth, uh, the present world? It's the, it's the scene of the struggle with sin and Satan. Eternity has nothing to do with sin. And, you know, Satan and sin have no part. So, this world is his, this world, you know, it's the scene of the struggle with Satan and sin. I mean, he's been tromping around on it and spoiling it and defiling it, you know, for centuries. Why, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't God get rid of it? Well, why not start fresh, discard with this old place, put a brand new pristine one in its place? I would ask, is that really, is that what God is like? Or would we expect him to recover and save the work of his hands because he's a redeeming God who rescues the perishing, who cleanses the lepers? He doesn't make the lepers disappear and put some new people that don't have leprosy in their place. Who raises the dead? Who takes what's dead and makes it alive? The late theologian Anthony Hokema wrote, if God would have to annihilate the present cosmos, Satan would have won a great victory. Satan would have succeeded in so devastatingly corrupting the present cosmos and the present earth that God could do nothing with it but to blot it totally out of existence. But Satan did not win such a victory. On the contrary, Satan has been decisively defeated. God will reveal the full dimension of that defeat when he shall renew this very earth on which Satan deceived mankind and finally banish from it all the results of Satan's evil machinations. God has made it, and Romans 8 says so, so that we are a lot like creation, and creation is a lot like us. And we are kind of like the creation. Satan has made us his stomping grounds, has he not? Before Christ and apart from Christ. Before Christ, before Christ and apart from Christ, well, even now, isn't your life, as Dr. Walters said, the scene of a great struggle with Satan and sin? Right? It is. And he tromps around, Satan tromps around in the lives of people, making a mess of things. 
defiling, despoiling, ruining, sowing sin, reaping death, right? But listen, there is no such thing as too ruined for God to save, is there? There is no such thing as too far, too far gone for God to save. You were made in God's image, and no matter what the world, the flesh, and the devil have done to you, and no matter what you've done to yourself, uh, God can save you, right? And will. So yes, with all due respect, doctor, there is more. (laughs) There is more. There's more than you knew. Because God is a saving, redeeming God. And just to get back to Revelation 21, where I'm supposedly, I'm supposed to be in. Our God says, Behold, I make all things new. Uh, Lord God, we thank you We thank you for loving the unlovable. We thank you for your power to save that which is utterly lost. To recover what has been utterly ruined. And make it better than it ever was. Thank you for the beginnings of that saving work in the lives of every believer here today. And for the promises, your promises, to complete your saving work, not only in the inner man, but also in the future resurrection of the body. And not only in the resurrection of the body, but in the renewal of all creation. Enlarge our view of the surpassing glory to come that we might endure our present sufferings with faith, with patience, and even with joy. And let those who are outside of Christ and without any reason for hope in this world or the next cast themselves on you and ask you to do in them and for them what they cannot and could never do for themselves. Namely, that you would save them from their sins. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.